All right. Hi, how are you? We're here at the uh, What Do You Know Podcast Central right now, House of a Guy's Own. And I'm here with Lyle Anderson. And the sun is shining. And the sun is shining, but it's still cold out there. I had a crocus come up and go back down again. So no. I watched it this morning. It came up, peaked. <laughs> Honestly, God. With good reason. Yes. Thrusting its phalli in the air, as some poet once said. <laughs> no. Yes. No, no one ever said that. Poet said that. <laughs> all right. And all the news that isn't, how about that? We'll just change the subject on yes. that pretty easily. Nice segue. In all the news that isn't, I see flamethrowers are on the Chinese tariff list. So glad I stocked up when I did. Uh, I think the tariff on cassette players might just be there for show or maybe a uh, red herring. So you won't notice all the other Chinese products we literally can no longer live without on the list. Just everything, of course, is made in China. Even that uh, Make America Great Again hat, made in China. (laughs) Is it on the list? I doubt it. I bet there's an exemption for that, baby. Of course, it's nothing like the problem the Chinese will have without soybeans. And, And we take them for granted around here. You see them so often. But over there in China... Uh, they use them in everything, including other soybeans. They do. They actually really put soybeans in their soybeans. That's how much they're into it. <laughs> well, there's two kinds. You know that. No. Didn't you grow f- soybeans on the farm? No, that that's a later development. What did you grow on them? I mean, I'm so... I, Oats, alfalfa, clover, corn. No soybeans? Timothy. No soybeans. Well, you missed the train on that. No, that, was, that, that was, you know, in the 20th century. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the 20th century, I remember it well. <laughs> what a train. It was limited, but it was, it was a great a time. Train. Yeah. And, you know, the Chinese do everything with soybeans now. They make, it's not just food, they make plastic out of soybeans, petroleum, and drywall. All from soybeans. No. The soybean to the Chinese yeah. is like the peanut was to George Washington Carver. Or Jimmy Carter. Yes, sir. And around here, we're going to have to plow under about a gazillion acres of yellow and black soybeans. If this thing goes through, so we'll have a lot of... Are those the two different kinds? Yellow and black? Yes. Oh, I didn't even know that. I believe the Chinese prefer the black. Who knew? But some, of course, there's always some prefer the yellow. It's a question of taste and color. I learn something every day. And not to mention all the sorghum fields that will be going over, because sorghum's on the list, too. Ah. You must have grown sorghum. Some people did, but it was... (laughs) It was an odd. It's crop. a sore point, is it? The sorghum. Yeah, it was. What was it? It was a little uh, experimental I, at that time. Kind sorghum? of, I think. I remember. Yeah. They were thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> it was the Eisenhower years. What do they use sorghum for, anyhow? What do you do with sorghum? Just molasses. Sorghum molasses, of course. Something That's like where that. I've seen sorghum. I think. You know, a lot of you, leg- when you go around here, a lot of soybean fields. You see, there it's actually sorghum. No, it's all soybeans. Okay. <laughs> Correct me if, if I say anything wrong. Uh, sorghum, the Chinese use for cosmetics. Oh, yeah. uh, they mix it with rare earths, and they force-feed it to geese. So that's a very important crop for them as well. Foie gras. Uh, you know, I can't say that either. Say it again <laughs> just so I learn how to say it. Foie gras. Gras. Foie gras. Fat. I've had it, and it's horrible to think how it comes, but it's the most delicious thing on earth. Yeah, well. Yeah. So hot. how, you know. Life on earth is like that. Terrible how they do it. 
But I like veal, too. But, <laughs> I love a veal shot. All those poor things. I never had it since I learned where it came from. But other things that came, came from, from even worse places, I've had that. <laughs> Anyhow, all, I, what I'm saying, we have a lot of empty fields around here. The good news is with all those empty fields, we could attract a whole slew of Foxconn plants. Ah. So that's, that's good news. All right, another news, not tariff news. President Trump orders 2,000 National Guardsmen placed one mile apart on the border with Mexico. They'll be connected with tin cans and string for any alerts down the line, which was Eric's idea. Good one. Uh, John Bolton wanted to send troops to the Alamo and wait for the caravan to cross the border. You know, maybe uh, lure them, telling them they'd won the Texas Powerball. And then when they come to collect, it's the Alamo. Only we win this time. In other news that isn't concerned, evangelicals are meeting with the president even as we speak, wondering how they get them some and get away with it while still sounding holier than thou. few more details coming out about the Stormy Daniels magazine spanking of the president. No. Turns out there are other implements involved, including the hotel hair blower, a single cup coffee maker, the TV remote, and a dry cleaning bag, possibly used for some sort of suffocation sex play. More at 10. In other news, it isn't the UFC star Conor McGregor charged on three criminal counts of being Conor McGregor. Talk that Trump will replace Attorney General Jeff Sessions with dipshit General Scott Pruitt. Good fit for Pruitt since there are a lot cooler freebies through the Justice Department than the EPA. There are? Oh, yeah. Just weaponries, weapon systems, and personnel carriers you can get to commute in and stuff. Yeah, but Pruitt has like three times the security detail, and yeah, but for the Justice Department, it's huge compared to party the EPA. trips to Paris. EPA is just chump change. Meanwhile, Sessions will then return to the Cracker Barrel in Hybert, Alabama, where he will start at the bottom like all new recruits and work his way up to another cabinet position in no time. Okay, little Bo, all the news it isn't inferring that there may be more personal data stored at Facebook than thought. CEO Mark Zuckerberg offers to tell Facebookers anything they want to know about themselves. Did you turn off your phone a while? It's my, my people. Your people? Uh, maybe Do you want to leave the room and take that? Yes, call? I It's the Carolyn is coming up from Chicago. Maybe they can't make it or something. Wondering they're where probably, the heck you are. They're probably okay. just confirming. Do I need to do this joke over again? No, just keep, keep on going. Okay. Virgin makes successful test flight. Good headline, anyway. A New Jersey couple wins $37 million in a talcum powder case. Hopefully it's not $37 million worth of talcum powder. And you know, all of us who had our bottoms baby powdered in the last hundred years should have one hell of a class action suit for pain and suffering. We should have uh, Johnson & Johnson by the Johnson. News anchors on Sinclair broadcasting stations are forced to close with a badly translated Hitler speech made on his assumption of power in 1937. Only the dates have been changed. The value-added MacBook Pro will double as a George Foreman grill, so they're really trying to sell that baby. Uh, At the Masters, more flashback problems affecting play for Tiger Woods, as he believes a woman is coming through the crowd waving a seven iron at him and double bogeys the hole. Okay, everything good there? Wow. Double-A minor leaguer Tim Tebow hits a home run on his first pitch at his first at-bat because God is a Binghamton Rumble Ponies fan. Uh, the best hope for the opioid crisis is putting him on the Chinese tariff list, of course. Then you just have to deal with the gas station Oxycontin, known as Limbaugh's. And finally, on a personal note here, I don't care how many E. coli breakouts Panera. 
I still love it. And those cinnamon rolls, they're to crap for. That's all the news that isn't. That's why I can hear the music in the background there. <laughs> and I'll put you in the uh, in Michael's uh, realm here. Okay. Oh, there he is. Oh, good. I can stop this song. Then. Hi, Michael. How are you? Hi, how are you doing, Michael? I don't know if this enhances my experience to watch you on the uh, Facebook screen or not. I, think I would. Gonna... No, I would kill it. Okay, there kill it. All right, there it goes. It ruins it. Yeah. How's things? Uh, things are great. I like that uh, greatest cartoonist and greatest human being of all time. Possibly. I said yeah. possibly. Yeah, things are great here in New Orleans. How are it, things in Madison? Hard to codify that sort of thing or <laughs> quantify yeah. it or whatever the word would be. They're, they're a little, little colder here than uh, we're used to even. Mm-hmm. And I doubt it, is it, it's probably normal temperatures in New Orleans. Uh, it's actually cool. It's, it's cool and lovely here. Cool and lovely. Sounds yeah. good to me. And, and uh, yeah, we go out into the cool air and we tell each other. Yeah. You know, enjoy this while we got it. Yeah. We never say that here. I've never heard anyone say that here. Enjoy this while the we cool got air? it. Cool uh-huh. air? Yeah. Or even Cool and Lovely. Mm-hmm. Although that's a song lyric, too. But can we play that? <laughs> the book we're talking about is Crazy, George Herman, A Life in Black and White, Michael Tisserand. Am I wording your name, by the way? That's close enough. I, I was born in Indiana, and that's yeah. the Indiana pronunciation. Okay. So, so what do they fine. say in other places? Uh, in France, I think it's Tisserand. Disserone. Something like that. Yeah. Do you prefer that? Uh, no, I'll go, I'll go with my uh, Midwestern. I'll go with it, Indiana. That's always yeah. a good way to go. It's there are Tisserands in the uh, St. Louis Cemetery, right by the French Quarter here in New Orleans, and uh, I get to pretend I'm a native sometime every time people see those cemeteries. Yeah. But Have you so checked them out? They're not related. I, I, I don't, my first Tisserand actually was a stowaway and, and landed in New Orleans, but he made his way up to Kentucky. He did. He didn't get as far as Indiana. Right, right. Uh, in, uh, Kentucky, southern Indiana, and then I reversed his course about 150 years later. Yeah. Michael, I love this book. I am so into Thank this. You. It's It's amazing. But first of all, I, I, I mean, I always love Crazy Cat. You have to. It's so abstract and wonderful. The drawings are so wonderful and unique. But I, I had, didn't, didn't know anything about George Herman. I assumed he was Jewish, of course, because I thought that was Yiddish. Some of those, his language use seemed to me to be Yiddish. But apparently it wasn't. Yeah, he, uh, people have assumed he's all kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, and that's sort of, I think, the miracle of Crazy Cat, is that Crazy Cat goes in every possible direction, and you can, you can feel like he's sitting right there on the crossroads of, of, uh, of being Jewish, Creole, Elizabethan, uh, German, you know, and everything else. And Greek. And Greek. Oh, and, of course, Greek. Yeah, because they that called... That was his cover story. They called him George the Greek at work, I guess, at the mm-hmm. newspapers. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that was a guy named Tad Dorgan that gave him that nickname. And it was kind of a don't ask, don't tell, because uh, an African-American guy working in Hearst Cartoon Studio at that time, or working in the art department, uh, couldn't have been working on that job. So yeah. uh, his friend Tad Dorgan said none of us knew what he was, so we called him the Greek and it stayed. Yeah, so we're talking about racial identity here, which is some, some people may not be aware of was was a, a, a major factor in his, in his life and work, I would say. When you look back now and, and see the, the drawings, as you have done in this book here, there's, there's so much related to li- living a double life. Yeah, living, living a double or maybe a triple life or a quadruple life, uh, you know, coming out of a mixed-race uh, 
French-speaking, uh, free people of color was the designation they had in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then having who you are make no sense at all when he was sitting there in the boarding house on Coney Island in 1900 and the census taker came around and said, what, what, what slotted, you know, how should I check you off here? Uh, and he could have had no answer. And I think, I think that that's where, yeah, I never want to say that's where it came from, but when I see Crazy Cat being both male and female and changing colors all the time, uh, I think back on those moments in Harriman's life and think they must be connected. Yeah. I, you know, and, and you know, I always look at, for psychology of things too. But I also think that, don't you think that Crazy Cat and Ignatz were actually the same person, both him? Uh, yeah, and yeah. Office of Pup too. And, and, and the, oh God, so he was tri- triple. And Gooseberry Sprig and uh, everything there was him, and the backgrounds and the Arizona landscape was all him too. And the landscape, you know, if, you know, very <laughs> Harriman very rarely talked about his strip very seriously, mm-hmm. except there's one interview when when he did, and uh, and the main thing he wanted to say is not enough people talk about the landscapes, and that's as important <laughs> to him as any character. That's right. And what was it? It was the Navajo part of it, mm-hmm. and but it was the landscapes themselves and sort of the surreal forms you could find out there. Yeah, he called it Coconino County, which was a mm-hmm. real county. Um, Actually, when he died, the New York Times uh, wrote that he had made up uh, the name Coconino County, and they had to run a correction. But uh, it's a real county, but he sort of extended the boundaries all the way from Monument Valley all the way over to, uh, to New Mexico, and the Mittens in Monument Valley, and there's uh, a, f- a formation called the Elephant Feet right. that show up a lot, only uh, in Crazy Cat, the Mittens start clapping and form a storm, and, and the Elephant Feet get up and run away. Right. And he was very close with with the Navajo uh, tribe, with, with the elders in the tribe. He would go out there every time he could, uh, and he lived with a family named the Wetherills, uh, who were the, some of the first traders. Uh, uh, in, they ran a trading post in Cayenta, Arizona. And I talked with a woman named Betty Rogers, who lived in Page, Arizona, who was Diné or, or Navajo, and she was raised by the Wetherills, and said that all George Herman wanted to do was to go into a Hogan, and sit with a Hopi or, you know, meet with a Navajo person and, uh, and listen. And he seemed, uh, he seemed to really fall in love with that area and the people who were there. Um, his way of paying back was uh, when he lived in Hollywood in the 1930s, he would send movies to Cayenta, Arizona, where they were shown at a tuber- tuberculosis asylum. Mm-hmm. Uh, every Saturday night, and that was the big event on Saturday night in Cayenta. People would hitch up their wagons and go to the hospital and have movie night, and he would send these westerns there. Oh, he sent westerns. He sent west. Yeah, he sent westerns, and some of them were filmed in that area. You know, John Ford, and yes. you know, and uh, the, a couple people that that wrote about seeing those movies talked about how um, the Navajo always seemed to laugh at the wrong times <laughs> when they were watching. And, and it seems to have turned out that uh, when Navajo actors were used as extras, they sort of filled their dialogue with insults to the uh, actors. <laughs> uh, that's, that's, that's what I've been told by the people who were there. Yeah, that's fantastic. Let, let's backtrack here for a minute. Mm-hmm. You, you see a man who's a unique stylist. His drawing is absolutely unique. I don't know anything like it. Um, started out, he was in, in Los Angeles at that point, and it was at, what, St. Vincent's School? Yeah, St. College. Vincent's College, which yeah. was a high school uh, in, in uh, Vincentian uh, College in uh, Los Angeles. Yeah. He, um, he moved there from New Orleans when he was 10 years old. 
his family moved to Los Angeles, and uh, and having been uh, mixed race, uh, or uh, you know, as as those names were changing, mm-hmm. uh, names like mulatto and things like that started to show up on the sentence on on the uh, sentence on the uh, census, mm-hmm. and uh, at that point, his family that had been really very political uh, in New Orleans sort of drew a line and crossed it and ended up in Los Angeles where they all passed as white and got their kids into St. Vincent's. Yeah, because he wouldn't have gone in otherwise. Was St. Vincent's where the art began for him? You know, I couldn't, I couldn't quite uh, say that for sure. I, I don't know what he was scribbling in the margins of, of, his, uh, of his notebooks in New Orleans when he was a kid uh, and who might have influenced him. I know that St. Vincent's did give art lessons, uh, and uh, certainly all the influences. He read uh, Don Quixote, and he read Shakespeare, and, and all, the, all the works that show up in Crazy Cat uh, come from St. Vincent's. But he was 16. He got a job as an office boy at the Los Angeles Herald, right. and he started drawing cartoons then. That's yeah. the first, those are the first cartoons that we see. Yes, and they're amazingly advanced. They are. By the time he was twenty, he was doing amazing. By the time he was twenty, he was rewriting Aesop's Fables for a William Hurst newspaper <laughs> with in happy York. endings. Right? Yeah, with, ha- with happy, right, right, with happy endings. Fox gets the damn grapes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's what you got to love about this. His innate. It's not just a sense of humor. He is humor. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I completely agree. Yeah. Um, and by the way, you know, I'm going to say, and just in general, like I mean, you obviously have a passion for his work and it's maybe an obsession even with him and and when i was a kid you know i had the same thing for walt kelly pogo mm-hmm. i in milwaukee and you go in the library there and you, they had all the back issues bound you know and hanging of all the pogo strips going back to the beginning of pogo and i, I read them all you know and uh and i was just obsessed with it it was very important to me and i i can see how that how how uh, george harriman could be very very important to someone who just discovers what's going on in that story, tries to. As a kid, did you understand the Pogos? Did you? Did no, you I had no idea until was, until uh, Lyndon, Johnson, Lyndon Johnson showed up as the Lone Ranger. He was half horse <laughs> and half Lyndon Johnson uh-huh. in the swamp. And then, wait a second, what's, I finally, you know. So then I went back and looked at all the old ones, you know, all these. It was very political and very topical, you know. When I was a kid, I, I loved early comics. I, I found 741.5 in the library, uh, and it, was, it just amazed me that there was a shelf full of comics. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, Dick Tracy was sort of my, my, like my Quentin Tarantino. It was just weird and violent beyond anything that was on TV at that time. Yeah. Um, but I didn't, I didn't really find Crazy Cat until, until much later. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was living in New Orleans, uh, working as editor of the weekly paper uh, in New Orleans, and I knew that Harriman was from New Orleans, and no one really quite understood that, and some people even disputed um, his what his family was all about in New Orleans. And um, so I started to read the strip and, and read the strip um, and started writing about it uh, right around 2005. And then um, I left for a couple years after Katrina and found myself up in Chicago, and I don't know if you went to it, but the Masters of American Comics exhibit went to Milwaukee. Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a room. I walked in. I was carrying my kid around. He was uh, three years old, I think. And I was, there was a room of nothing except George Harriman original pages. Wow. And I was reading them aloud to my kid. And he was young enough that he could be influenced by my sense of humor, so he was laughing. And, uh, and 
we it was magical and uh i went back and and uh decided I wanted to try to uh, write Harriman's biography at that moment, really. Yeah, and what a challenge, because he said so little, uh, revealed so little about himself. First, he didn't want to talk about himself, really. Well, he revealed a lot, but none yeah. of it was accurate. None of it was accurate, okay. <laughs> All right. Better I mean, he fed into the myths uh, that, you know, that were written about him, that mm-hmm. he was, uh, that his parents, that his father was a baker, uh, he wasn't, he was a tailor, that he was, you know, he would, he would claim New Orleans sometimes as his birthplace, sometimes Los Angeles. The Greek thing he laughed, or, laughed along with. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it was, it, it was, there, there's still things that I'm trying to figure out after yeah. 10 years working on this book. Uh, and that, a, that apparently, apparently he didn't appreciate his work or what he did. He thought it was, it was, it was not that good. Well, he knew it was not, I, he knew it was not that popular. And I think for a working cartoonist raising his family, you know, I think he equated those two things. Um, because he never tried to dumb it down. He never tried to change, uh, you know, Crazy Cat into something uh, simpler that, that, that might appeal more mm-hmm. to, you know, to readers. So in a sense, you look at every page, and there's anthologies on Sunday Press Books and Fantagraphics. You can go out and buy, you know, Crazy Cat uh, for just about every year that Crazy Cat was published. And when you look at that, it's completely confident and, and uncompromising work. Yeah. But, but in letter after letter, he said, you know, I think they're going to cancel my junk. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to have a contract next year. Uh, you know, it's hard to believe, but he, he, he sort of recognized that, uh, well, well, you know, readers complained, um, you know, having a, a, this crazy cat that's both male and female and, you know, had these complicated references to classic literature and, uh, this shadowy Monument Valley background that changed panel after panel. Yeah, they put uh, they put him on the arts page, didn't they? At one point, right? Yeah, it wasn't high, on the comic page. Yeah, the highbrow page. The highbrow what, uh, page. Yeah, that's what uh, Art, uh, what Brisbane said. Arthur Brisbane uh, called it kind of dismissively. Uh, but yeah, they put him on the high, highbrow page along with they had poems by Tolstoy and uh, you know little, little <laughs> works of literature here and there, and that's where they put crazy for a long time. Kindred spirits. Exactly. Tolstoy. Sure uh, and uh, and Crazy Cat, I think that's that probably is true actually, and, and plus all his his fans were like T. S. Eliot and uh, and and who else? Every, yeah, well, every, everyone. Uh, the, big, the most influential one was E. E. Cummings. E. E. Cummings, yeah, yeah, because he's when, when Harriman died in 1944. Yeah, uh, E. Cummings basically called his publisher, and that the only way he could read Crazy Cat then were these you know yellowing uh, newspaper pages uh, and. Uh, He's called his publisher and said, "I want to do a book of, uh, of Crazy Cat," and uh, and I think on the strength of, of Cummings' name, not on Harriman's name, uh, the publisher went along with it. And it was that book that Charles Schultz read uh, and said he wanted to make Peanuts, you know, into something better than just funny little kids, uh, you know, doing goofy things. Uh, that he wanted to bring something personal to the strip. And I think it was that book and that work that moved cartoonists into um, letting themselves be more complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the page, yes, and I think Cummings borrowed from him as well. You know, that uh, man unkind, you know, in Cummings. Yeah, that sounds like right out of Crazy Cat. When you read Cummings' letters, uh, yeah. he he talks about Crazy Cat and he starts to imitate Crazy's talk. That we, you know, <laughs> that sort of Yiddish, Shakespearean, German Creole uh, thing we're talking about. Mm-hmm. He sort of imitates that, and and, it, and that's sort of before the Cummings poetic voice comes out, and you kind of you kind of see it merging together there. Yeah. Well, now, now your book is, is, is sort of deals with this, with racial identity and the, the the double identity, the double bind he was in, kind of. Yeah. Um, 
do you believe that in in his cartooning that he was trying to give hints to that, or or that it was just uh, that that was a conception that he was trying to deal with in his life, and it came out in the strip as well, or? You know, it's it's um, right about in the middle, about the fifth or sixth year. I had the one dream that I remember about George Harriman, yeah. and uh, in the dream, I, I say to George Harriman, "I just found out when your birthday is," and, and Harriman kind of laughs and goes, "Oh, you did, huh?" <laughs> so every time I try to sort of think about what Harriman was trying to do, mm. um, I always feel like uh, you know I'm trying to work above my pay grade a little bit. But mm. but when you look at the work, you know, I, I think Harriman brought himself to the page in a way that we see, had seen, especially to that point, you know, very rarely. You know, he brought there some sorrowful, sad strips, uh, right. as well as, you know, really delightful, happy, zany strips, and, and, uh, and really complex, complicated strips. And, and, and when you think about uh, the fact that he was, uh, he would have been known as a black guy, he would have been known as an African-American now, um, but at that point, uh, you know, he was married to a white woman. He lived in a house uh, that he had built in the Hollywood Hills that had a racial covenant. Uh, so you couldn't be, you couldn't, you had to be white. Yeah. You couldn't be black. You couldn't be Jewish either uh, right. to live in that house. Right. And and uh, and then you look at the strip. Um, and everything and, in his life was that way. You couldn't have been any part of his life. At that point, right. Yeah. Right. And, th- and then he's got these characters that kind of come out, like there's an equatorial bear uh, where... You know, Crazy Cat says, are you a polar bear? And the bear says, no, I'm an equatorial bear. My, my mother was born on the North Pole. My father was born on the South Pole. You know, and and uh, my favorite one is when uh, Ignatz and Crazy, this, this is sort of the strip I always point to most frequently in, in thinking about race. And I think it still is kind of an amazing strip to read in 2018, uh, where Crazy Cat's working in the kitchen and Ignatz is working out on the floor at a restaurant and says, gentlemen, wants uh, black coffee. And uh, Crazy sends the coffee through the window, and Ignaz says, this isn't black coffee. And Crazy says, oh, yeah, look under the milk. <laughs> um, right. And, and uh, you know, there was another, even right before he died in 1943, there was this a weasel. And uh, it was a brown weasel. And, uh, and found out that it, it would be more value, I guess its pelt would be more, val- more valuable if it was a white weasel. Uh, and Crazy says, sort of innocently imagine color making a difference in its value. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it, 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 if, when you start to think about those parts of George Harriman's life, uh, those moments in Crazy Cat do start to sort of surface. Yeah. And it, it might somewhat explain why, this, uh, why Ignatz is always throwing bricks at someone who is absolutely in love with him. Yeah. You know, if, if, if they're both aspects of him or whatever... It's it's kind of not self hatred or something, but a self whatever you know yeah. critique right. of, of for being who he is you know right and uh, in in the beginning crazy wasn't in love with uh, Ignatz's bricks at all uh, no he wasn't and, and not, that not developed over see that over time that can happen in a relationship <laughs> <laughs> thank you it's good to know. <laughs> But then, yeah, yeah, then crazy. No, go, no, go ahead. I mean, what, when did well, that then, change? Well, around, around 1916, 17, 18, uh, the character of Crazy started to change a lot um, in a few different ways. Uh, one is George Harriman discovered Charlie Chaplin. Yes. And, okay. and you really see a Chaplin esque quality come 
in Crazy Cat, and, and, and I'm quite sure that, that Crazy Cat influenced Charlie Chaplin in some ways also. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, um, But then around that time, Crazy starts to have these hearts pop out of Crazy's head every time the brick is thrown and uh, says, I'm a happy, happy cat, uh, or sing, you know, sings a song, There's a Happy Land Far, Far Away, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, one of the many songs Crazy sings, along with the Prisoner song, which you were playing earlier, yes. By the Wings of an Angel. Don't make me play it again. I've never gotten through that entire... That's a long song. That's a real Saturday morning pick-me-up, that song. Yeah, I know. I was was trying to wake people up with it. It didn't work. They're not listening right now. But, uh, yeah, amazing. Actually, why in that that strip, why was uh, Crazy in jail, in prison? Ignatz. Oh, 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 in that particular one, why was Crazy in jail when Crazy was singing? Um, Crazy sang that song a few times. It wasn't the song that Crazy sang most often. Um, and all I remember about that strip is that Crazy was separated from Ignaz for some reason. Yeah. And that's, and that's what Crazy was lamenting. Yeah. Um, another, another lament for Crazy is a song called uh, Tonight I'm a Widow in the Cottage by the Sea, which I think, I might be wrong on this, I think it's called The Orphan's Lament, and the Carter family did a version of that. Oh, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's a, whole, there's a whole string of uh, Crazy songs. George Harriman actually wrote lyrics. You did. Uh, that crazy sang that have never been recorded. I'm oh. talking to my couple jazz friends in New Orleans here thinking we need to, well, not we, I don't know how to do it, but they need to put some melodies to those lyrics sometime and, and put them on, you can't say on disc anymore, whatever, put, the, put them out in the put air. Put them on something. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things, the, the ones that I like was the inferiority complexion. How about that? Yeah. yeah that was a good one. Yeah. Cra- you know, that's why, so crazy changes color a lot. Yeah. And, does. um, which isn't that unusual because Harriman was hanging out with, you know, Laurel and Hardy and, and the our gang people, and, and that was kind of common for uh, some somebody to run under a, a, a doorway and have a sack of flour fall on them, and you know they run around and everyone says a ghost or something. But when 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 Crazy would change color, it sort of changed everything in the relationship between Ignatz and Crazy, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Crazy Ignatz would fall in love with with Crazy. Uh, when crazy was white, and and uh, sometimes crazy would have a different reaction to Ignatz if Ignatz turned black for some reason. And, yeah, uh, yeah. That that one you're talking about, crazy's looking at a mirror, a handheld mirror, and said, "Not good. Why did you tell me?" And Ignatz says, "Why not tell you what?" And uh, crazy looks and says that I had an inferiority complexion. <laughs> um, you know, inferiority inferiority complex was kind of brand new. It's sort of a, a new pop psychology phrase right at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Harriman picked that up and, you know, and twisted it a little bit. Yeah. And Woodrow Wilson, before going into the war room, would read Crazy Cat. True? I don't know if it did him any good, but uh, <laughs> but that is uh, his Secretary of War stated that. So, uh, so uh, yes, that seems to be uh, something, he, something uh, President Wilson did. Yeah, might not have affected the outcome of the, yeah. of the war. Yeah. Um, we may have entered it because of that. Who knows? Um, well, actually, there were a lot of you know there were a lot of great World War One strips with Crazy and Ignatz, where there's yes. trenches and things like that. And, yeah. and there's some. I, I don't know Harriman's politics. They don't come out too often uh, in in the strip. And in fact, I found voting. Uh, I found his family members on the voting rolls, and I didn't find him. Yeah. Uh, so so he might have been very apolitical. I'm not sure. Yeah. But but there are a lot of. There are a lot of moments in uh, in Crazy Cat during during the war, especially during the First World World War, where uh, there's uh, 
moments of, you know, crazy and Ignatz uh, out on the battlefield and, you know, calls up friend or foe and Ignatz says friend and the last panel they're embracing. Real, real simple, mm-hmm. lovely, uh, yeah. you know, kind of sad uh, moments, uh, you know, during the war. Yeah. Well, Hearst, the Hearst papers, they were anti going into the war, weren't they? Right. Until that. Yeah. Right. And until they weren't. Until they weren't, and then there was a big push to make everybody on the paper, you know, show what a patriot he was and how into it he was, and so that went down to the cartoonists as well, right? So they, he had, but he didn't do anything traditional in terms of, of you know, supporting a war effort or, or, or patriotism and so forth. It was something different, personal. Yeah, I think he donated some money to some, uh, you know, to some some sort of like orphan uh, widow and orphan funds. Uh, Harriman did, but uh, but besides that. Yeah, and there are some. Uh, there are a few crazy cats where it's very clearly um, uh, William Hurst said, "Do this, everybody," and, and you know, Harriman had to go along with it. So there's some strips where uh, crazy uh, Ignace, instead of uh, getting a brick, uh, gets war bonds instead. Uh, you know, at the uh, the war bond window instead of going to the <laughs> to the brick place, and that that was clearly not Harriman's <laughs> choice. Yeah, uh, Harriman also did a uh, a big crazy cat uh, in honor of a movie by Marion Davies. Uh, you know, Hurst. Uh, Hearst's uh, special friend, uh-huh. uh, and all the all the cartoonists did that also. So yeah, sometimes the chief would send down these little orders to his cartoonists. Yeah, you know, you know the thing I was thinking about before when we talked about him being dis- dissatisfied with what he did was from uh, William Paul Langridge. Mm-hmm. Did a profile in Cartoons Magazine, nineteen twenty-two. Do you have that issue? You probably do, I guess. I have a copy of the issue. Yeah, yeah, and he said about him, Harriman is dis- dissatisfied with the strip. Mm-hmm. While he regards his work as an inferior attempt at humor, that's just surprising, his efforts to improve it have raised the standard of a strip to a plane far above the usual run of strips. His, da- his drawings are inimitable, and his humor both subtle and original, but early in its existence he made a mistake by allowing Ignatz to abuse crazy. Little did he know that the public would acclaim this action as real humor and demand its repetition. Uh, and he said, when it goes on to say, he tried to take the brick out as often as he could, but the editors wanted to put it back in. Is any of that actually accurate? Um, you know, I think there's, I think, I don't know about Harriman trying to bring uh, out, you know, take out the, the brick throwing. Yeah. Because uh, Ignatz doesn't always throw the brick. Sometimes it's sort of an implied brick. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and some and, and and also Ignatz never throws the same brick. It's always got a different sound effect. It's always got a different reason around the throw. Uh, you know, it, 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 he's throwing it from a different place, and it's having a different effect. Um, so I always think of it as sort of a jazz musician, you know, playing variations on the theme. Uh, whenever I, you know, whenever Ignatz starts the uh, the brick throw, mm-hmm. um, but it, it is true that um, if if he talked to Harriman. Uh, Harriman would probably talked down his work, and in fact, uh, one another cartoonist. The only the only criticism they all they all really liked George Harriman. All the cartoonists saw him as sort of a, a patron saint, I think, because right. he saw the cart he saw the comics page as a place where uh, art can take place, and I think that was I think that's why he's still why people like you know uh, Bill Watterson and Art Spiegelman and you know uh, and others you know would later turn to him. Um, because this sort of high and low art thing was, you know, meaningless, it's meaningless in Crazy Cat. And, uh, but I think that, um, I, I think there's this tendency of Harriman, whenever he talked to anybody, especially uh, a journalist, uh, 
to be really self-deprecating. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, we talked about inferiority complexion. Uh, there was a, another cartoonist who wrote an essay and said that uh, that Harriman's got an inferiority complex so deep that all of Ignatz's bricks couldn't fill it. Hmm. And I think if the only criticism I ever hear people talk about when they knew if they knew Harriman was that it could get almost annoying, uh, you know, that he was sort of down on himself. Um, and in the last years of his life, he was also in really poor health and had migraines and and. Um, and I think that he was down in, in you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to diagnose him from my, you know, biographer's seat, but, uh, but you know, he was, he was very depressed and, and, uh, and had lost a lot of people close to him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think especially, especially the last maybe decade of his life, he, he was starting to get very self-deprecating. There was a friend of theirs that wrote a letter to their friends in Arizona saying he can't even get Harriman to go to Arizona anymore and it would be, you know, do him a world of good if he'd get there. Mm-hmm. But, and that that made its way into Crazy Cat, by the way, and that that melancholy uh, it, it made for some really uh, touching and beautiful strips. Yeah, when it, when it first became impl- after his death, actually, when it first became at least implicated that he was a, a, a black man, uh, how was how was that regarded by the black community? Um, well, I find today, well, it, at first, in some in some quarters, it was embraced. Uh, it was in the early 1970s, and all it was found was one birth certificate. Um, and as a New Orleanian now, I can tell you that one one document from City Hall uh, doesn't tell the story. There's lots of reasons to be suspicious of a document, especially concerning race, coming out of New Orleans City Hall. Um, but that one document was found, and it was embraced by uh, Ishmael Reed, um, who heard about it and dedicated his book Mumbo Jumbo to uh, George Harriman. Um, so in some areas, it was absolutely embraced. Uh, I find when I go around and talk about this book, um, you know, racial passing, uh, one person who's sort of an expert in, in racial passing uh, said, you always have to remember it's a story of loss, um, that, that when someone has chosen to pass, um, it, it's a story of, of losing family members, losing one's own history in some ways. Uh, you know, and it's, a very, it's a very painful uh, and and not yet resolved uh, time in our history. It still goes on, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, I also find when I'm talking to young people, I have to sort of explain racial passing. That seems that's, that's right. unusual to them. Um, and you know, I can only equate it when I was uh, in high school. We didn't have racial passing, but we had sexual orientation passing, where a gay person uh, you know, could not come out uh, or felt they could not come out in, in my school. Yeah. Um, and and would pass, and and you know people pass in all kinds of different ways, uh, and and during this time, the 1890s, you know, up until Harriman died in 1944, um, it, it, racial passing was sort of defined one part of his life. The name of the book is Crazy. Michael Tisserand is the writer. Get the book, read it. It's a wonderful thing. It's on Harper. Crazy, the story of. George Harriman, A Life in Black and White.
someone to live with.